Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 if you happen to close your Bible after we read our New Testament passage this evening. I want to begin by asking a few questions. Um, how many of us, either here or online tonight, have never had any doubts about God, His Word, Jesus, or our salvation? How many of us have never had a moment of uncertainty? How many of us have never struggled with unbelief in any way? How many of us have never fallen prey to desiring God's gifts more than God Himself? How many of us have always possessed wholehearted devotion to God? So the last one is, how many of us over the last two weeks have thought, I'll never be like anybody in this hall of faith? Well, what if I said to you, what if I said that a faith that never doubts is actually faith in a God that is too small and too predictable and probably not faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has revealed himself in the person of Christ and in his word to us. What if I said to you that a faith that never doubts may in fact not be a strong faith? And rather, it could be in fact, in the words of Kent Hughes, a dead faith because it's never exercised. Brothers and sisters, we're walking through this hall of faith. We're in the third section, and I I thought... Maybe for you, but I know for me, I thought it would be a good idea to remind us of the fact that those in this list were all sinners and all struggled with their faith. They all battled with doubt. They all struggled with uncertainty. They all at times lacked A wholehearted devotion to the Lord. They all had times when their faith wasn't as strong one day as it was the next. And and that's the case even with Abraham. Abraham, who is called the father of all who believe, struggled with his faith. Right? We, we tend to forget that his faith wasn't as strong as in the beginning as we see it tonight. We tend to forget that, that his faith, we, we forget that early on there was doubt. And we also tend to forget that he a couple times lied and gave his wife away. Not his brightest moments. 
So the faith that we see described tonight is actually the result of this repetitive cycle of ups and downs. Right? That, that up and down, the, the doubt and the certainty, and it was met with faith. And then the, the battle with doubt and uncertainty, and then it was met with faith. And it was this repetitive pattern over the course of his life. The strength of Abraham's faith was different here in the end than it was in the beginning because he had, like Enoch, he had walked with God. Yes, it took faith for him to leave Ur, to leave his family. Yes, it took faith to go to a place that he didn't know in the beginning where he was going. But over time, as he walked, God continually proved himself to be faithful even when Abraham wasn't. And over time, Abraham's faith was strong. And that said, and I've already said this just a moment ago, but we do possess the same faith that Abraham possessed. It's also the same faith that Abel and Enoch and Noah possessed. And we'll see tonight, it's the same faith that Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph possessed. But it's not the same because we have the same amount or the same quantity. It's not the same because we have the same quality. It's the same because the object is the same. The object of our faith is God Himself and His Word and His promise, which was the same object of faith for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Part one, if you remember of our mini-series within this larger series, we saw in verses 1 to 7 what faith affects. Last week we looked at verses 8 to 16 and saw what faith elicits. And tonight we're going to see two things. Two things that faith accepts. Two things that faith accepts. One, faith accepts the commands or the precepts of God. And secondly, it accepts the comforts or promises of God. Faith accepts the commands and the comforts. It accepts the precepts and the promises. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we jump in. Father, in this is your eternal and infallible and inherent word. And while the grass may wither and the flowers may fade, we believe this, your word will endure. Would you in these moments, by your Spirit, give us ears to hear and write its truth upon our hearts. Assure us of and strengthen the faith that you've given us and give us rest for our souls. Would you use me, your servant, as you see fit this evening? And it's in Jesus' name and for the sake of his church I pray. Amen. And amen. Well, let's jump right in and look first at verse, I'm going to read from uh, verses 17 to 19. We're going to look at the commands or precepts that faith accepts. By faith, 
Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who was, or who had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, of course, the writer is referring to the story that we read in our Old Testament passage tonight from Genesis chapter 22. And from 1 to 14, and this is the fifth time that God has approached Abraham or that we have recorded. And it's in this encounter that the Lord actually tests the faith of Abraham. This is something that he didn't, or that we don't have recorded. The, the writer of Hebrews doesn't say that he did this with anybody else within this hall of faith. This is something that he does with Abraham. And we know from Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 1 that there was a goal, that there was a reason for it, and there was a purpose of this testing, which was to prove and purify and strengthen Abraham's faith, the faith that God Himself had given him. Listen to these words from Peter. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And what made this testing so challenging as William Lane has pointed out in his commentary, is that it's one thing, as we talked about last week, it's one thing to surrender the past, as Abraham had to do, and as we are to do. It's another thing, though, altogether to surrender the future, or what's to come, as Abraham was being asked, asked to do in Moriah. I want you to think about this for a minute. Isaac was the one that Abraham and Sarah had been waiting for. The one they had longed for. The one that they had been patiently, maybe, maybe not, but they had greatly anticipated his arrival. And you can imagine, we could fill in the blanks a little bit and, and kind of fill in those places that we don't really know. But you can know, especially if you're a parent and you've been awaiting the birth of that child and how they must have He was the one that was, well, that it was humanly impossible to conceive. He was the one most dear. But God said to Abraham, he said, take your son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Take your son, take the one you hold most dear, and give him up. Take the son that you hold most dear. In other words, Abraham, do you love me? Do you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you fully devoted to me? Am I first and foremost? And I 
have to imagine that there wasn't anything natural within Abraham that would have thought this was a good idea. There wouldn't have been anything humanly speaking within him that thought this should be going on. He probably just within himself, it probably rubbed against every fiber of his humanity. But that wasn't the only reason. This also was very concerning and very difficult because Isaac was not only Abraham and Sarah's only promised son, he was also the only promised covenant son. He, he was not only the promised child, he was the promised covenant child. And what I mean by that is, Remember the, the Lord, and this is why the Lord says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. We know that it wasn't his only son, he had Ishmael. But the reason it says only son is because Isaac was the promised one. He was the one to whom the promise would be fulfilled. So the command was, was also challenging because it seemed very, very inconsistent. It was inconsistent. Uh, it seemed contradictory. Because Isaac had to live for the promises to be fulfilled. And yet the Lord had asked Abraham to kill him. And what did Abraham do? We said last week that faith elicits obedience. And the Genesis account tells us that he arose the next morning and headed out. He took two men with him. He traveled the 50 miles to Moriah. He puts the wood for the fire on Isaac's back so that they can hike up the mountain, build an altar. He lays Isaac out on the wood, ties him down, and raises the knife. And the writer of Hebrews summarizes and says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now that doesn't mean at any point that there wasn't this internal conflict. It doesn't mean that there wasn't an internal conflict. It, but it does mean that he didn't argue. He didn't attempt to strike a deal by bargaining with the Lord. The language is such, actually, that the point the writer of Hebrews is making is that Abraham's decision was so matter-of-fact, he was so resolute, he was so determined to do what the Lord had told him to do, that it was as if the sacrifice had actually taken place. Even though the Lord intervened, even though the Lord told Abraham to stop before he plunged the knife, from God's perspective and Abraham's perspective, Abraham had actually sacrificed Isaac. And it was as if he received him back from the dead when the Lord said, stop. And we ask, well, what overcame Abraham's internal conflict? What overcame that inconsistency? What overcame that contradictory nature of the command? And the, and the answer is it was his faith. It was his faith in the Lord. Remember we also said last week that faith elicits reasonableness. 
And so we see that Abraham had to have logically walked through the facts. He wasn't just charging blindly into this. God had promised, let's remember the promise, God had promised as many descendants as the stars in the sky or the sand on the beaches, on the shores. And that those descendants would all come through Isaac. On the other hand, Isaac was supposed to die by Abraham's hand. So he put those two things side by side. The only way for Isaac to die, as God had commanded, and for God to also fulfill the promises that he had made to be fulfilled through Isaac, was to do one thing, and that was to bring Isaac back. And while Isaac coming back from the dead, just like his birth, seemed humanly impossible, the greater impossibility was for God to lie and to go back on his word and not to fulfill his promise. So Abraham knew, looking back, that, that, that God who had given Isaac life through a woman who had been through menopause and was unable to have children, and through a man who is described, by the way, as as good as dead, surely that same God could raise Isaac back from actual death. He knew it was possible. And he was so sure, this, he's so sure of this, that what did he tell the two men that he brought with him? Abraham said, hey, you two, hold the donkey, wait here. Isaac and I are going to go worship. We'll be right back. The two of them together. Abraham was so resolute in doing what the Lord commanded, it was as if he had actually offered Isaac. But that resoluteness was birthed out of humility. It was birthed out of humility. Abraham didn't pretend to know more than God. He didn't put himself in a position of judgment over God. He didn't have to have all of his questions answered by God. He simply believed the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He rested in who God had revealed himself to be in the past. He trusted in what God had promised for the future, and that allowed him to act and do what God had asked him to do in the present. His faith accepted the command. Faith accepts the commands. Secondly, in verses 20 to 22, faith also accepts the comforts. Verse 20, it says, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now the three men that are each have a verse dedicated to them are all the context is their final days of life. All of them are approaching death. 
And yet all of them continued to look to the promise and the promises that God had made. Even approaching death, they're still looking ahead. And all these stories are really familiar, so I just want to briefly touch on them. If you remember, Isaac gave the future blessing that was, uh, according to custom, was to be given to the oldest son. He actually is tricked, and instead of giving that blessing to Esau, he gives the blessing to Jacob. But what happens is the, the, as the days go by, or as, as, it, as things proceed, Isaac stands by what happened. He doesn't waver in that. He stands by the decision because he knew that the purposes and promises of God would not be thwarted and wouldn't fail due to the deceitfulness of man. Actually, he knew that the Lord could use and would use deceitful man to bring about the fulfillment of his promises. Now, as far as Jacob is concerned, William Lane says that Jacob's final act of worship was leaning on top of the staff. And it was, it was kind of neat that was characteristic of one who had lived as a stranger and a soldier. And as a stranger and a soldier, the, the, one of the last things that he does in the end of his days is bless Joseph's children. And Joseph had, had made sure, right? I'm guessing, but I'm, I'm thinking he, he knows the story of Isaac and Jacob and Esau. And so Joseph picks up Manasseh in his left hand and Ephraim in his right hand so that when he presents them to the father, there's not going to be any mix-up that, right, that Jacob is going to take his right hand and place it on Manasseh and his left hand on Ephraim. No tricks, no confusion. But what does Jacob do? Jacob crosses his arm. And he takes his right hand and places it on Ephraim. And his left hand on Manasseh. It wasn't a trick, it was purposeful. Jacob knew the purposes and promises of God would not be, would not fail and would not be thwarted simply because things were done contrary to human tradition. And then lastly, we come to Joseph. And Joseph was so sure of the promises that even after 80 years living and serving Pharaoh and living in Egypt and and serving the people of Egypt and and despite the fact that he had invested so much time and effort and energy in the welfare of the people and had achieved a name for himself and position and status, he knew that all of that All of that was nothing compared to the promise. He was looking to the promise that was ahead. All of this, all of of the earthly earthly things that that he had earned, achieved, accomplished, nothing compared to the promise that he was awaiting. So much so that he says, when I die, don't leave my bones here. And even alludes to the captivity and the eventual exodus. And says, hey, when you guys finally go from here, take me with you. Bury my bones in Canaan. Which, of course, Moses takes and Joshua eventually does. 
These three like Abraham, all three of them, even to the point of death, at the end of days, they were still resolute in looking to the promise. They were forward thinking. They were promise focused. They were spiritually minded. They were anticipating what was ahead. And they were resting and trusting in God and His Word. They were men of faith. Again, who were certain of the future. And they, we have in these, these three verses, we were reminded of passing on the blessing. Trusting in the promise, passing on the blessing, but leaving that legacy of faith for those to come. So, what do we take away? Right, the inevitable question, there, there are always more than, than I can mention. You may already have one, you, you may have had one from point one, you, you're hanging on it. You've already written it down, and you're good. I'm going to give you three anyway. First, brothers and sisters, we need to remember that if we're going to accept the comforts, we must accept the commands as well. If we're going to accept the promises, we have to accept the precepts. Faith accepts them both. Our call is to rest in the promises, and as recipients of the promises, we're to obey the commands. We're not free, we're not free to, to disregard the commands and precepts of the Lord. The same God who has promised is the same God who desires our devotion and our obedience. The same word that comforts us is the same word that contains the commands that we're given and are to follow. And on those occasions, I've seen this in the story with Abraham, on those occasions when the commands and our obedience seem to be at odds or when the commands seem to be in opposition to the promises, what our faith does is it accepts them both. And we obey because our faith enables us to rest in the fact that the Father knows how He is going to fulfill the promise and is able to fulfill the So we need to accept both. Secondly, we must be ready. We need to ready ourselves for our faith to be tested. And it is to give it. He's going to test our faith. We need to be ready for that. And he may do that, as I was telling the children, he may do that by asking us to let go of that which we hold most dear. It could be a person... It could be a relationship, it could be a lifestyle, it could be an identity, it could be a material possession or a financial security. And again, he may do it to determine our level of devotion to him, but he also may do it to identify and remove the idols of our hearts that we're clinging to. And those idols aren't necessarily, they don't begin as bad things. In other words, there are gifts that the Lord has given us that we can turn into idols because we, be, we become more devoted to them than we are to Him. And, and we can begin to over-desire them and rest in them and trust in them. 
And whether they start out as good or bad, we need to remember that we don't need to be devoted to anything more than the Lord Jesus. Our devotion needs to be fully, we need to be fully devoted to Him. And so the Lord wants those things gone. We hear these encouraging words from Arthur Pink. He says, the Lord has an absolute claim upon us, upon all that we have. As our maker and sovereign, he has the right to demand from us anything he pleases and whatsoever he requires, we must yield. All that we have comes from him and must be held for him and at his disposal. Then he says this, the bounty of God should encourage us to surrender freely whatever he calls for, for none ever lose by giving up anything to God. We do not lose. We have him. And third, let us remember where I began tonight. Where Abraham's faith it may encourage us and it, it inspires us and it definitely challenges us. May we never look to the quantity or quality of our faith. May we never look to the, the quantity or the amount of our faith or the quality or the strength of our faith to determine our salvation. For even a weak faith as small as a mustard seed is enough. As long as our faith, as long as the object of our faith is God as He has revealed Himself in the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, our faith does not save us. Jesus saves us. We are saved by grace alone through faith. That he has given us as a gift. And it's by faith that we receive and rest in the promises that God has made and that Christ has purchased and secured on our behalf. May we always look to him alone. Let's pray again.